I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. All right, so I am nearing the end of season two, so I'm trying to pack in a few of my favorite people before the end of July, and that brings me to my guest today, who I will just dive into introducing. Chitra has spent all of her working life in the environment sector. She started her career with the Worldwide Fund for Nature in Malaysia, where she undertook the first ever marine mammal survey for West Malaysia. She is Indian Malaysian. Uh, She then moved to the UK and joined Hampshire County Council, which is the largest county council in England, for those of you who are not British and don't know what that means. So it's quite a large county council involving lots of smaller district councils. But she joined 20 years ago as a climate change officer. Back in the days before climate crisis was really a known thing, back in the early days. And her role has had a lot of twists and turns over the years, but now she's back to working on climate change as the strategic manager, which means she leads the county council's response since 2019. And that means having declared a climate emergency and working on climate change as a political priority, working on implementing that in the ways that they work across the council. So it's quite complicated, but it's very thorough, and Hampshire is seeking to lead on this, which is pretty exciting. Uh, Chitra is Chitra. Chitra, I know you well. I'm not even going to edit that out. It's one of those moments. <laughs> Chitra's passionate about the environment and is even more passionate about being a woman of color in leadership and showing how we can all bring all aspects of ourselves to our workplace, making us more motivated and effective in the longer term. She has a strong vision for what she wants to achieve and the ability to inspire others to join her, which I can attest to firsthand uh, because Chetra and I actually met mm, almost three years ago. No, three years ago now, working together on a behavior change innovation project for Hampshire. And she was actually my client. So we worked really closely together. And over the course of that project, kind of became friends. We catch up, we enjoy each other, we do lunch. Um, And just getting to know each other more as women in very male environments has been a really beautiful thing and sort of supporting each other, getting to know each other. And I I recently spoke actually at a diversity network event for Hampshire, and there were over 100 people who showed up online to have Chitra introduce me and hear me talk about sustainability and being human and having purpose and feminine leadership. So these are all very related to what we're going to talk about today because Chitra is a blend of things. She's also a single mother to a mixed race teenage daughter and divorce and single parenthood have shown her a lot about her own resilience and grown her toolbox of skills. And these, these forces continue to provide a lot of opportunities for learning and self-growth. And I know Chitra is dedicated to her daily yoga practice, which of course in 2020 was a real, I don't know, as an anchor point, a center point, as she, like most of us, was locked into her house. But it's also helped her to keep her positive outlook and balance during the pandemic. Chitra has a very clear and strong personal style, and she uses that to channel her creativity and convey her personality through fashion and interior design. And I will include her Instagram 
on the show notes because you definitely want to see some of the outfits she puts together. I always loved going to meetings with Chetra and being like, what's she going to wear today? I was dying to see because it just you show up in beauty in the world. And even though you're in roles that aren't fashion related, they're often very serious political issues. You're talking about climate change or behavior. You always show up looking beautiful and like yourself. And it's about helping others to feel empowered through fashion and express their true selves, which you do so well, Chitra. So I'm really excited about our conversation today because it is really always a pleasure to talk to some of the amazing people I know through my professional network who have then become friends and people I admire, expanders of my own horizons. So welcome, Chitra. Thank you, Betsy. My goodness, what an introduction. (laughs) Yeah, it's usually the first step of a discomfort practice to make you extremely (laughs) uncomfortable and how awesome you are. And this is when I love being American because I can do that to people. But yeah, we're going to talk about sort of how how to get shit done at work and in life and calling out bad behavior and what it's like to be a woman in leadership. And we're just kind of range around all the areas of your life as a very well-rounded, multifaceted woman. And a lot of listeners will be able to relate to this because they themselves are probably juggling a lot. They have a lot of different identities and hats they wear. So let's just kick this off. I sort of warned you roughly before we started (laughs) what the first question would be. So what is an uncomfortable moment that has shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Wow. I mean, that is a tricky one. And I think it's so difficult to think before being a mother Mm. that I think I'm going to have to go with the being a mother one. And Mm. particularly for me, being a mother to a mixed race girl has just given me so many uncomfortable situations that I was not expecting. And I think I'll frame that by saying I've been in the UK for over 30 years and my experience of racism is minimal. I think I'm I'm particularly lucky from that perspective. This has not been the case with my daughter. So I have had over the last 14 years faced many uncomfortable situations where I've had to question myself, my own behaviors, the way I kind of come across to people, the things that I've taught my daughter. Yeah, so it's really forced me to look at myself and really see myself and my daughter from another person's perspective to try and understand where these experiences are coming from and how I can help my daughter get through them without just going straight for the anger, judgment, you know, the fear, fear based approach. What's interesting about that is because you have another person to look out for, to show the ways of the world, you have to take a very measured approach. And I suppose that's that's really interesting because we're seeing a lot of well-deserved anger exploding into the world through movements like Black Lives Matter. And obviously, you know, diversity and inclusion is a big priority for a lot of corporates, the public sector, everybody. Everybody's supposed to be paying attention to this. So how do you integrate that into your professional life? Because I know you're involved in diversity and inclusion work at Hampshire. Um, but yeah, how how do you do that work because of where you're coming from? And also based on what you've just said about having a teenage daughter who encounters this stuff, how has that flavored your actual work on it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting. It's um, it's grown a lot in the last two years. I would say, I mean, as, I, as you said, I was in Hampshire for 20 years and when I first joined, this really wasn't on the radar. And because I never really faced any racism or anything like that, it really never occurred to me that it was something that I needed to be doing. 
And then it starts to grow and then you start to become aware of instances where other people are facing issues that you may not have faced. And that's where I started to realize that I have a role. And particularly because I'm in the leadership position as well, it was important for me to sort of recognize that as a woman of color in a leadership position, that was the minority in a minority. Mm. So it was really critical that I start to have you know, a role to play in this. And I think it's a challenge for me because, and I've said this to our chief exec and I've said it to other colleagues, I have a level of privilege myself. So, you know, when we talk about white privilege, I think there are different levels of privilege, not just white privilege. And, Mm. you know, my accent, the way that I dress, the way that I look, my education, my background are all privileges that I have that make me slightly different to maybe the other experiences that are taking place, you know. So I had to kind of get my head around that as well and understand Mm. why I wasn't experiencing some things when other people were and then coming to the sort of realization that this might be about sort of perception, it Mm. might be about the way I talk, it might be about the way I dress and that was just not good enough, you know, that's not, that's not the right thing you know just it's great for me because I don't have any of those racist issues but it's not great as a sort of way of operating and I think it was really easy for a lot of people to think oh well you know Chitra you're in a leadership position you get to go to cabinet and present and you get to be you know in front of all of these leaders and talk so clearly there isn't an issue but I'm not saying there is a huge issue but I think I am quite an easy person to put in front of those <laughs> situations yeah. Yeah. so there is something there about recognizing that and and being clear that you know um I don't represent the full spectrum of the sort of diversity that needs to be represented in any that is, organization That's such a valuable thing to raise because obviously I spend a lot of time thinking and talking about white privilege and it's just a really useful perspective because a lot of people are feeling very attacked because these issues have now come to the fore and we're having to really grapple with how the world works for a lot of people who aren't like us. So it's really useful to to think about, you know, whatever, we don't even have a term for it, do we? It's sort of beautiful Asian woman privilege, (laughs) articulate, you know, sort of all these various things that give you privilege. And that's a really useful thing to just chew over. But I guess that sort of leads me into something that we we discussed ahead of time would be useful to talk about, which is how do you call out bad behavior in your work life and your personal life? Because, I mean, it's not necessarily around racism. It might just be around ways of working. I remember when I was researching the Hampshire demographic before I did this project with you, and it's 90-something percent white. So it's a super, in in most areas, in many areas, it's very affluent, very white, very conservative politically with a capital C. And of course, that brings a different perspective. Not that that's wrong, but it also means some ways of working have been unchallenged, perhaps. Uh, so yeah, I guess just Go off on that one as much as you want to, but how do you call, you know, how have you personally called out bad behavior in your personal life and in your work life? I'll start with work because I think that, again, that's been a huge learning um, journey for me. You know, when I joined Hampshire, I was in my 20s. It was my second job. You know, I, it was really difficult to call out bad behavior. And that's kind of most people's point of view. You know, their starting point is they're junior, they're new. It's, it's a real kind of challenging, scary thing to do. 
And then you start to kind of develop a bit more um, confidence. You have um, a bit more credibility. And then you realize that you actually have a voice and people will listen to it. But it's about how you say it. So, you know, I might go off and have a rant with my friends first before I think about, okay, how is a constructive way of calling this out? You know, how do I do this in a way that is exactly that constructive and not destructive? And I have found that that does work. And I also think now I have become, you know, kind of built up the reputation that I will be the person who does that. So when something does happen and I do send the email that says, okay, I've, I've got to say something about this because I'm not comfortable. It's almost now expected that I will and not in a negative way, in a positive way. So then it becomes like, okay, we need to think about this. We need to hear what you're saying, go away, think about what happened here and what lessons we can learn and how we can do things differently. And, you know, in the last, particularly in the last year, there's been three or four things that I've had to kind of talk about with my managers, with, you know, other colleagues. And yeah, that's been the response. I think because it's not done in an aggressive, you know, destructive way, it's very much, okay, how do we do this better? How do we grow? How do we make, you know, keep getting better at this? And it, again, it's not, none of it has necessarily been about race or diversity. It's been about all sorts of things, you know, that happen in an organization. So, for me, it was definitely sort of building the reputation, the credibility, the fact that, you know, this is the sort of person I am. And then how do I approach it in a constructive way? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point about uncomfortable conversations, though, that it doesn't necessarily mean that you avoid the uncomfortable topic. It's really all about how you put it forward. And I suppose a lot of that comes from confidence in what you're actually saying, confidence in how you feel about it. And I know a lot of people have a real problem, a real struggle with, well, I, I did a solo episode about this this week about being difficult, quote unquote, being difficult. And it's not about being difficult. It's actually about just saying the truth, but in a way that is hopefully taken from a place of assuming good intent. Yeah. And so I guess, how does that carry into your personal life? Do you find it easier or harder? <laughs> I was just about to say, yeah, that's like, that's why I started with work, because I think it, for me anyway, it's a lot easier to bring that sort of very professional, very measured approach, because mm. the emotion is there, but it's not anywhere near as much there as when I'm talking about my daughter, you know, and I, as again, you know, I've had a lot of instances where I've had to deal with, you know, other students or her school around it, racist incidents. And no, you know, I have, I can't hand on heart say that I've done the best job there. <laughs> it's been an emotional response at times, um, because, you know, she's, a child and she shouldn't have to deal with these things but you know I think the 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 point is that I will never not do it so even though sometimes I might not do it very well I I think what I'm trying to say to my daughter and to the people who associate with me whether that's my team or whether that's my colleagues or whether that's my senior managers or whether that's teachers or whether anyone is that I'm not going to just let that one go I will say something you know and I think that for me is a really important part of my job as a woman of color, as a mother in the job that I'm in. It's having the sort of reputation that, yeah, I will say something. I will be the person that will go up and go, okay, let's deal with this. And I'm kind of known for that now. So, you know, in my team, they know that if something goes wrong and they're not comfortable with it, that I will call it out and I will say, no, mm -hmm. that's fine. I'll follow that up. I will raise it. Mm. So for me, 
sometimes that is the most important thing is is just okay make the commitment to take some action sometimes it may not go as well as you wanted and other times it might go better but that's okay do you have a sort of way you go about it just you know sort of three top tips for people who <laughs> are really trying to just get better at saying the difficult things at calling out the things that they see rather than just keeping it to themselves to be polite because I think a lot of people in the past year have realized that we are not in a place to polite and nice ourselves off a ledge collectively <laughs> it's yep. time to start saying some of the hard things to fix the things that aren't working for people or aren't working for us as individuals so yeah how do you approach it you you recognize it and then you have a yep. you email or like what how do you approach this maybe work maybe personal life I think the biggest thing I've realized is to make no assumptions. And, you know, this is every time I have a conversation about anything that I'm trying to sort of call out. It's the fact that if there's a vacuum of information, you will create information to fill the void. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that information is completely wrong. So you've taken yourself down some path because that's what you think happened when actually when the information becomes available, you might st stand back and think, oh, okay that's not quite what I thought was happening here. So I think that's my most useful tip is make no assumptions. So even if you think you know what's happening, you may not. Um, and then from the other side of it is my, what I keep saying over and over again is transparency, be open, communicate openly, be transparent. Because again, the minute there isn't transparency, that allows for lots of gossip, lots of misinformation, and that's really difficult to come back from. So I guess, you know, how I do it is depends on the situation and depends on what I'm kind of talking about. Sometimes it's an email, sometimes it's a private conversation, you know, whatever that may be. But I think what I have really learned and sometimes the hard way is don't make that assumption that you think you know what's happening. It's, you know, it's about kind of finding out first and then once you've found out the information then you can kind of go in with oh okay well I think this is what needs to happen etc rather than going straight in and saying I'm really unhappy with this this should never happen you know because you actually a lot of the times you might be wrong mm. those are really valuable because I know you as a really masterful and effective communicator and somebody who has forged some really good relationships with pleasant relationships with you know people who have a lot of power, for example, or people who, you know, might have their own political agenda, which is totally normal in a political organization. <laughs> so, you know, being able to go in and not have prefabricated the script or your points or going in as defensive, you just go in yeah. curious. But that does come from a certain level of perhaps confidence and power, right? Yes. So I know you're a yogi, obviously. How how have you created that level of confidence? I imagine some of it's natural, but what are your practices that keep you sort of centered and confident? And, you know, what's your internal monologue or your pep talk? Or is it just a way that you are now? I mean, obviously age, you know, 47. You learn a few things along the way. Um, <laughs> 40s are the best decade as a woman, aren't they? Oh, I love it. I know it is the best decade, honestly. My mother, you know, definitely was a role model for a strong woman um, who always spoke her mind. But yeah, I mean, I think from a work perspective, I guess I just make sure that I'm doing the best job I can, that I'm as inform well informed as I am. I try not to bullshit. If I don't know the answer, I don't pretend to know the answer. I just say I don't know, um, because I think there is 
this just that's just a bad like dark hole you can get yourself into you know when you start to try and make things up and I think yeah of course that comes with confidence but that's partly how I built my confidence was to go into presentations thinking nobody knows this better than you first of all mm. and if someone asks you something you don't know so what just say you don't know but you can go and find out and that's essentially the kind of approach I have with most things and I do that with work very much so I do that with my personal life with Inika you know my daughter I will just say I don't actually know what you're supposed to do in that situation but we can talk it through you know we'll maybe find a solution together I guess I know myself and that's quite a difficult thing to kind of explain but I think I've come to the point in my life where I know who I am I know what I'm good at I know what I'm not mm. good at um, and I play to my strengths and I make sure that the people around me play to my weaknesses so you know mm. I I will never pretend like I can do all aspects of my role that is not something that I know I'm capable of I'm not for example a data person I'm not a detail person so that is something I've learned over the years is is you're only as good as the people around you <laughs> and you know I just I don't want to um give any false impressions and I think that's so important and it's oh we do that in every aspect of our life you know I think for example first dates you know, mm. we all know what with we do in first dates. You know, there's this whole like, oh, look at me, I'm so this, I'm so that, and then you know, two weeks later, if the if you're still dating that person, you might think, oh God, I wish I hadn't said that. But you know, it's human nature. <laughs> it's just human nature, and I think I'm really learning to not do that, and to be really happy with who I am, where I am, what I am good at, what I'm really not good at, and what I'm <laughs> not, you know, and I'm, I'm really just getting comfortable with that. And I think that's, um, it's, yeah, of mm. course, it's, a, it's an age thing. It's, it's, a, you know, experiences thing. Um, it's lots of different things. I think having a daughter now with all of the pressures of social media, mm. you know, it's, it is really important that I do come across like that for her. So she, has that to kind of look to and see that it's not about being good at everything. It's actually just being good at the stuff that you're mm. good at, working really hard, um, you know, putting the time and effort in, but having a balance. You know, I don't, I don't work all hours of the day. I have a really good work-life balance mm. because I am a single parent and I love my yoga and all the other things that I love doing. So, yeah, I think that all these little bits kind of come together to make you understand who you are and what you're good at. And that builds your confidence. And then, you know, you walk into a room and you think, OK, well, I know I can do this and I know I'm good at this. And as I said before, you know, if someone asks you a question that you don't know anything about, then you say that. Mm. And I think people really respect that. Mm. Have there been points, though, and sort of thinking about discomfort, like how... How did discomfort maybe lead you to this level of comfort in your own skin, in your abilities, in your role, and in yourself as a human? Because you have a very multifaceted life. You're not just your job. So what maybe were some of the past discomfort points or edges of your comfort zone that you can now look back and see you, you've grown past, you've stepped over the boundary into a bigger comfort zone or whatever? Yes, I mean, definitely looking back on, you know, previous roles I had and just you know the way I approached them it was very kind of headstrong it was my way or the highway you know everything had to be perfect and just not 
you know, realizing that that just wasn't working and people, although, you know, the mm-hmm. job was getting done, it's, it's that whole thing now, isn't it? It's not, you can write a beautiful report, but if you pissed everybody off in the process of writing the report, it's not a successful report, you know? So it's kind of a bit of that happened. Um, you know, I did, I think what I did do is get a lot of feedback throughout my career. So I always ask for 360 and, you know, those things can be really uncomfortable and, you know, you just have to put the big pants on and read them and go, okay, good. I get that. And you have to also just go, what, what can I change? What can I work on? What can I improve? And Mm -hmm. what is actually just fundamentally me and then how do I adapt those bits that are fundamentally me to maybe be soft around the edges and, you know, consider other elements without, you know, because I think a lot of people get feedback like that and they go, but that's just my personality. How you're expecting me to change my personality. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand why they say that, because that's what it felt like to me when I first started getting feedback. Um, and yeah, so I think it's about how you kind of just slightly tweak the little bits that aren't, you know, that other people find difficult or how you come across or how you relate to others so it's it's just so many different things um you know I remember when I first kind of got the sort of climate change role and having to go and present to our cabinet you know it was nerve-wracking and it's just one of those things that you just have to kind of go into and do. And I, I watched the video of myself presenting back and, oh, God, you know, it was not, not a nice thing to watch. But it made me realize, OK, fine, OK, you need to start doing this more. You need to think about this. You need to be, you know, you need to prepare these sorts of notes, etc. You know, so it, it really helped me look back and go, OK, right. Those were the good bits. These are the bits that could do with a bit of improvement. Um, so feedback in all its different shapes and forms. Um, and as I said, feedback is normally really uncomfortable and it still is, but you have to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, I'm thinking about 360 reviews. Everybody just hits that with dread, that <laughs> review time of year in like September, October. And you're just like, okay, when they ask for the names of the people that you want to be asked for yep. <laughs> for feedback. Yeah, I've had some brutal ones because also some people aren't great at giving feedback or they make it like I have had some yes. personal savagings from people who work for me who just frankly didn't like me very much. And it's at that point in my life, I did not know how to take it as not personal. You know, how how do you not take really hard feedback that might be intended to be personal personally? And how do you just think this person is saying something about themselves or just their yeah. perception of me? But then taking that feedback on board, yeah, feedback is really hard. And like you said, it might be you watching yourself <laughs> back on camera and going, oh, God, oh, God. But yeah, feedback is so uncomfortable, yes, isn't it? And it is. And, you know, yeah, you just have to take a breath. And I totally agree with what you said. Not everyone is good at giving feedback. And, you know, that's, again, another thing I've had to really learn to do over the years. And, you know, I've I've had to manage um, all sorts of different types of staff. And I've had to give some very uncomfortable feedback. But, you know, that's it. In a way, doing that also helps you understand the way that you want to receive feedback. So by having to give difficult mm. feedback and do it in a way that's, again, constructive, not negative, not personal, you know, you have it then makes you really understand how, you, you know, you want to receive it and that person wants to receive it. And that's a really valuable lesson as well. It's, you know, 
giving and taking feedback is, yeah, they're both very <laughs> uncomfortable things to do, but necessary. Super. Yeah. I'm just designing a session for a client right now, actually, on feedback. And it's for really high-level managers at a well-known corporate. And in doing that research, I've come across so many useful bits of insight, but one of which is uh, it's a book called Thank You for the Feedback, and it's really classic. But they talk about how the power of feedback lies in the receiver, yeah. how they receive it, and helping people to understand and know how to receive feedback kind of can make any kind of feedback useful of you can yep. also disagree with feedback and that's perfectly valid of like, I really don't agree with your, with your point there, but yeah, feedback. I think everybody here who's, who's been through a 360 review or gotten professional feedback can relate to that. Yeah. Ouch moment when you just maybe get defensive. I've definitely cried after some feedback. Oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also anybody who's in relationship, Oh boy, you get feedback constantly and how you react to feedback dictates everything that comes after because it's completely down to yes. you what you do with it. But yeah, this, this kind of also leads us neatly into talking about how it is to be a woman in leadership. And we've talked a bit about feminine leadership. And I've talked that a little bit about that on this podcast. And we'll talk about it a lot more in season three from September about not female leadership, but feminine leadership. And we both know what kind of more or less what we mean by that, which is, you know, maybe more nurturing or listening or collaborative and you know it's just it, it's just different from that sort of masculine cowboy follow me <laughs> hero leader model and hierarchical and just like don't ask questions just do what you're told so what's it like to bring your femininity you're a very feminine being what's it like to bring your femininity to leadership such an interesting question because you know I don't know if you know anything about color works but I totally lead with red which is essentially mm -hmm. just just do it, just just get on Me with it, too. just do it. Yeah, um, which can be quite yeah. a masculine trait. Um, and again, with feedback, I you know I was told you're scary, uh, you know we're, we're scared of you basically, <laughs> and I'm like oh god, okay, that's <laughs> that's not good. So again, it's been years of you know listening and managing staff has been such a great way of learning to bring the feminine side to my role. Because, you know, you're looking at, especially now I've got, you know, a team of people who are quite young, ambitious, you know, this, for some of them, this is like their first uh, big kind of role. Um, and I want to kind of give them those opportunities to grow and to learn. And part of that is about that sort of nurturing, teaching, bringing along um, side of it, which I think a lot of people just it's it's a difficult thing to do it's not it, it's not as easy as it sounds you think it's like quite a simple thing to do but it's not um it's actually really hard and you know it's one of the things that I keep thinking about when I manage my team is okay what opportunities can I give my staff to either sort of build their skills build their knowledge or expose them to different situations that they will never have opportunity to do otherwise and being in the climate change team gives us a huge number of those opportunities and I, I kind of make sure that we take advantage of that and I give my staff that kind of chance to to shine and, you know, it's not just about me as the head of that team. It's about all of us um, having that chance to kind of be seen and to be heard and, you know, put them in situations that are maybe a little bit uncomfortable for them as well. Um, so it is a bit like parenting <laughs> in that way. You know, I kind of almost see it a little bit like that. 
And then the other side of it is could be seen as very superficial. But, you know, for me, my image is really important. So, yeah, I think very carefully about what I'm wearing to what situation, how I look, how I come across, you know, because whether you like it or not, that makes you memorable. And women have a great advantage. We can wear whatever we want to wear. You know, we have a lot of choices in that department. And there's no longer, you know, the need for me to wear a suit in any of these situations. So, you know, when you walk into a room full of people in suits and I'm not wearing a suit, you stand out. And that is a good thing, you know, and that gives you a sense of power. But it also brings, I think it it makes people look at you differently and consider you differently and think, oh, okay, hold on. She's wearing that. She's looking like that, but she's talking like this, you know, so she has total credibility and yet she is dressed in a different way to what you would expect everyone to be wearing. So I think that is something that I have absolutely brought to my role is, you know, my sense of fashion and style, it sounds so superficial but it really isn't it's such an empowering and important part of my personality so I think when someone sees me and they see what I wear and the jewelry that I wear etc they immediately get a sense of the kind of person I am and I think that's really important and I don't think many women consider the power that that has as part of your role It's interesting that you do make that feminine because obviously the the point is really how do you show up authentically as yourself wherever you are on the masculine feminine spectrum or your gender identity. But yeah, I think is a, a a really interesting point for women to consider in leadership or wherever you are because we need leadership at all levels. Yeah, what's what's truly you? What's not just going with what you've been socialized to believe is how you should look or how you're supposed to look in that context. Because I've kind of, as I've done my own thing and been a freelancer for almost eight years now, have really done that more the past couple of years of showing up as more what looks like me rather than what's the costume I'm supposed to wear in this setting, which can be fun. It's fun to sort of suit up and be on stage, but what do I actually want to wear that's reflective of me? So I show up with this funny little geisha bun I've got going on on the top of my head and, you know, my lipstick and probably dressing younger than people (laughs) think I should dress for my age on occasion and and just have fun with it, but enjoy the surprise that that brings because it also opens doors to be unexpected. Absolutely. When people have to figure you out because you don't really conform to what's supposed to show up. I mean, I remember you coming to some of our big sort of political meetings. And yeah, that is exactly, you know, it's just such an important part of the role was you were asked to be at those presentations because of obviously your knowledge, but also because of your presence and your confidence and your style. And it drew people in and it made people stop and listen and you can see that happening, you know, and you can see that happening in so many different circumstances that I think as a woman in leadership, you just have to take everything that you have, all of the different tools available to you and use them. And again, as you said, not in a false mm-hmm. way. It is about who you are. It is about your sense of style, how you want to dress. So if that's a suit, then great, but make it you. You know, it's. I think that's the bit that comes across is the fact that it's not. you're not wearing something that you're uncomfortable in, that you kind of like, you know, oh, mm-hmm. I'm doing this because I need to look this way, then it, it immediately defeats the purpose. 
you know, it is just being yeah. authentic, but also comfortable, but showing yourself, you know, and I don't think we bring enough of our personalities to work, you know, that I think you when you gave that presentation to our women's network, you talked about, you know, you park your personal life at the door, that's totally wrong, you know, and th that's part of what I yeah. want to do is, you know, this idea that the more of yourself that you bring to work, the better you are at your job. And I don't think people think mm. that way, they very much have a work life separation and uh, I'm what I'm and what I'm not saying by that is that your whole life is about work <laughs> what I am saying yeah <laughs> it's actually the opposite of that I think for me it's it's that you know yeah your whole life is about you so please don't leave you at the door when you go to work because that's how can you eight hours of nine hours of every day I just wouldn't you know yeah Oh my God, we would all shrivel up and die. Yeah, well, what you're referencing, just so listeners understand, is one of my first bosses in my career, this is over 15 years ago, said with pride, you know, leave your personal life at the door. When you come into this office, leave your personal life at the door. And then he also said that he, he only hired women and he liked to hire mothers because they worked so hard. And I was just like, wow, this man would never get away with saying this now. I will not name names and don't go back and look on my LinkedIn. I won't give you any years to figure this out. But wasn't that long ago, but now so much of why I've developed how I work with leaders and people in leadership and bringing their full selves to work, why that's such a big part of my message when I do talks or, you know, workshops or whatever now is just I've gotten approached by so many people who are really tired of having to separate themselves from their work. You know, they can't, they can't show up and be emotional. They can't show up and live their purpose at work because they've been in a career that has nothing to do with their purpose. And now they're trying to figure out the road back. So I think it's just start to ponder that. How can you show up authentically? And even how I've done it has changed. I, when I first decided that like lipstick was my thing, this was probably about 10 years ago, sort of in the, as an homage to my grandmothers, they were all lipstick ladies, but I thought of it as armor. So I would use it as a, it's like a visible you walk into the room lips first when you're wearing bright red lipstick and people assume <laughs> that you are confident. And so it was almost an act as if thing. And I, I referred to it as armor, you know, like how I dress, I think about the armor I want to put on. And I now have just so much comfort in myself that I don't need armor anymore. And now I yeah. can decide what's really my look and what I, how I want to show up. And if I want to look a little bit sharper because I know that that will play well to that audience or I want to look a bit funkier because that's just how I feel that day. Yeah, the, the armor is gone. Now it's just I look how I want to look. But the, the mentality around that has changed. I've come to a greater level of comfort in myself. And also the world of work has changed, doesn't it? I mean, you yeah. will see that very starkly if it has because you are at, you know, public sector organizations aren't known for being the most Absolutely. innovative or <laughs> forward thinking in terms of work culture. So how has it changed over the 20 years you've been at Hampshire County Council in showing up in your beautiful clothes and your beautiful self? Well, I didn't when I first joined. You know, I, I went straight in with the uniform, you know, the black trousers, the shirt, nothing, you know. And that was partly because, to be perfectly honest, my sense of style hadn't really developed at that point. But also because that's what I was seeing, mm. you know, and I just thought, OK, right, I, this is what you're supposed to look like. And this is how I'm supposed to show up. And and then gradually, you know, started introducing different elements of my own style and seeing that that was OK. 
To be, I think, you know, it's like any other organization. It, 20 years is a really long time and the world has, I don't know, it's changed so immeasurably in that time that um, I'm really kind of proud that, you know, as a local authority, which can sometimes be, you know, has the reputation of being kind of quite, you know, conservative, etc. We are actually quite open to, you know, different styles, different looks. It, it's not... I, I, I didn't mean that in that way. I think it's, I've never seen anyone kind of go, oh my God, what is, what is that person wearing? You know, it's just, it's, it's just accepted, you know, that you will bring your individuality. I think the only thing they would ask, and I think any organization would ask is professionalism. Mm. So, you know, you dress appropriately for, for that um, event, but how that looks is, is really not, not being questioned. And, you know, I've got, tattoos on my wrists over the years and not a single person has ever mentioned it to me as a, oh okay you've got tattoos N- never I've employed people with tattoos who have said to me is it okay that I've got all and I was yes not an issue and that's going back 15 years you know when when I kind of had those conversations with new members of staff so so yeah I think it's it's progressive in that sense that I don't feel restrained by the environment I work in um Having said that, I don't think a lot of people do feel comfortable to express themselves um, at work. And I wouldn't say that's got anything to do with where I work or, you know, particular to Hampshire. I think it's just, you know, a bit of a, I think a lot of people feel that way. It's just, you know, it's easier to put on a uniform, like you said, a bit of an armor than it is to bring your true self to work. And I think that's, I'm, I don't think everyone needs to do that. It's really your personal choice. Um, and for me, you know, that whole woman of color, all of those things become so much more important now because of the leadership position I'm in. Mm. But yeah, I have to bring all of those elements with me. If not, what am I there for? You know, sure, I can deliver a really good climate change strategy. Great. I'm sure lots of people can do that. Can they do all the other bits as well? You know, and I think that's what I look for when I employ someone is, sure, of course, I want you to do the job. But what else are you bringing? What's your personality? You know, what other interests do you have? Um, what other things might you champion? You know, what you might start a, a totally new network that we didn't even think about because of your own personal um, interests. You know, so for me, those are things that add value to our workplace. You know, and the women's network that we've now got, the inclusion and diversity networks that we've got, you know, they are really, I think they're just so interesting how the number of people who are turning up to those are bringing such different aspects of themselves to those networks that you just think this is this is where the power lies. You know, you mm. the more you do this, the better you get at what you do because you feel more yourself, you feel more empowered. And yeah, it's sorry, a bit of a long-winded answer to that oh, one, but beautiful. there's so many things, you know, that you just, how can you leave all of that at the door? I just can't. It's not possible. So, Well, it's about living a well-rounded life, but also realizing that eight hours a day or more often of that life is at work. So what are you losing? What are you leaving behind by not bringing that? Do you think though, and I get the sense that a lot of white people are doesn't even occur to them to bring certain aspects of themselves to work is because a lot of people, frankly, don't have a clue what their purpose really is. You know, they're not really sure why they're here on this earth this time around, or they they've just maybe never thought about it. So why would you bring your personal life to work, your personality to work? Because like, 
does it really matter? Or what even is it? And I, I get the feeling, you know, we're having this sort of very meta discussion, <laughs> probably for listeners who think a lot like we do and have thought about a lot of the things we think about. But, you know, sort of the, the people out there who haven't really thought a lot about their purpose and and they're just happy to show up and do the thing and go home and get their pension in 40 years. <laughs> you know, like how can they show up more fully as themselves? Are we just being a bit condescending and sort of, you know, is this is this a very middle class educated discussion we're having here? I mean, it has to come from yourself. You know, no one can ask you to bring more of yourself to work. It, and like you said, if you don't even know what that is or you think, hold on, this is a job. I'm here to do my job, earn money, switch the computer off at the end of the day and then live my life. OK, but you have to question then how much of that life is being given over to something that doesn't fulfill you completely. And everyone mm. thinks that when you say that, oh, you know, your job needs that it needs to be this amazing job that you dreamt of when you were like six years old. You know, you're going to be an explorer or, you know, whatever it is. It's not. Any job can be fulfilling. I think it's just mm. how you decide to approach it and what you mean by fulfilling, you know. And for me, I, you know, I know that a lot of people might look at my Instagram profile, for example, and go, you work for a county council. This doesn't make sense. <laughs> but it, for me, it makes complete sense. You know, I absolutely adore my job and I love what I do. And then there's all these other bits and parts of me that, yes, some of it bleeds into work and some of my work bleeds into my personal life. And it's just all one big thing. You know, it's just me. I am not one thing. I am not a stereotype. You can't say, oh, you know, Chitra, climate change, therefore you're going to be this kind of person. It, that's not who I am. But that makes me feel fulfilled then because the eight hours that I'm sat in front of my computer fulfills different aspects of my life, you know, my kind of my um, creativity, my ability to be strategic, you know, my, the work that I'm doing has meaning, it has, you know, I'm, I'm taking action, it feels good to be working in this area. And then I, you know, I join networks like the Women's Network, the BAME Network, etc. So the fulfillment element is something that I just think people miss understand that word you know and fulfillment cannot be it just doesn't come from an external thing it comes from an inside thing so if you can't be yourself at work then surely you're you're not going to be able to be totally fulfilled at work I don't think um, and I think if you don't know what that thing is that you're bringing to work then maybe you need to spend a little bit of time thinking about that but I will say that fear drives a lot of this and it did for me for a long time was the fear of bringing myself and then that not being accepted. You know, so what happens then? This is me. This is what I like. This is what I look like. This is how I want to dress. This is my interests. And that for somehow being kind of rejected. What, what do you do at that point? You know, I think that's probably some of it. You know, when I think kind of going on a little bit of a segue here, but I think when, um, friends of mine or women say that they're not interested in fashion oh it's just all a bit superficial I think it's a fear that's driving that because they haven't worked it out yet you know and because there is no such thing as fashionable or unfashionable because if it's you then it's fashionable for you you know but as long as you know what that style is and who you are and represent yourself through the clothes that you wear or whatever it is so I think often this you know this idea that 
work is work and you shouldn't, you know, you know, I'm just that just eight hours of the day, you just get the job done, switch it off and then go and live your life. I think there's an element of fear in that. And rightly so, because I think for many years, bringing your true self to work was probably not, not the thing to do, you know, whereas times have changed. And I do feel like now it is something that employees are looking for. They want more mm. than just, you know, the nine to five, I'll do my job. I won't, you know, I won't engage with anything else other than my job. That's not what they're looking for anymore. That's, you know, I haven't mm. seen a single job advert that says that. <laughs> you know? So fulfillment for me then comes from bringing all of those elements together. Mm. And then I guess, yes, we are privileged in that we have reached a point where we understand ourselves and we're comfortable with ourselves and we see the benefits of bringing that to the workplace. I don't think it's condescending. I think it's journey. And I think sometimes it's just easier to push it away and say, oh, no, it's not important. It's not, that's not what work is for. Yeah. But I think that's driven here often. Yeah. And I sort of, it was, it was sort of an intentionally provocative comment about, you know, are we just being condescending? Because I absolutely believe there's a way to do it in a way that's condescending, but the whole focus of my next season is going to be on how do we step into the new human experience? Because I do believe we've, we've stepped into a new paradigm, you know, and we need to create new ways of being and working and being at work, which is about being well-rounded and bringing all those aspects of yourself to work because we're facing all these tricky issues like climate crisis, like social inequality that require people to be fully creative and fully themselves in all contexts. So yeah, I, I was sort of being cheeky in the condescending comment, but I absolutely believe that being well-rounded is absolutely, utterly essential to human survival. So how do you, as a very well-rounded person, you know, you've got fashion, you're a mom, you've got a great social life, you've got your great job. How do all of those things feed each other? Or maybe flip the question if you want. How do you feed all of those aspects of your life to make sure that you are a well-rounded person who is thriving and happy in all of those areas, if possible? I mean, I think the last two years has really accelerated some of that journey for me. Mm. Um, the only word I can think of is just acceptance. You know, I've just accepted who I am. I've become really comfortable in my own skin. I know what I love to do. I know what I don't love to do. And I've stopped trying to live for anybody else. You know, it's just, this is my life. This is the way I want to live it. Um, you know, and by that, I don't mean that, you know, I'm not going to make sacrifices for my daughter or anything like that. I just mean that even in those situations, that's still my choice and it's still the way that I want to do it. So I think it's just, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I just know what ticks my boxes now <laughs> and I'm quite comfortable with that, you know. And yeah, of course, you, you know, you can get distracted by seeing things on social media and, you know, all the FOMO and all of that stuff and, you know, coming out of lockdown I had that conversation with one of my girlfriends you know this whole like I don't want to get back into the FOMO zone I am refusing to go back into that game because I have just spent 18 months pretty much in my house and have not hated it in fact I have bloody loved it so <laughs> what's you know so why is it that when we're all opened up again and everyone's going and doing things that you don't really want to do anyway 
why would you then have FOMO about it? So if you want to do something, go and do it. If you're not doing something on a Friday night and everyone else is, enjoy it. Sit there with your lovely glass of wine and your music and read a book and look at your beautiful home and appreciate it like you have done for the last 18 months. You know, So mm. it's really a mindset and an acceptance. It's a constant battle in the sense of, you know, you've got to be doing that all the time. You can't just say it to yourself once and then forget about it because I know six months from now, you know, I'll mm. be sitting there going, oh, everyone's going out on Saturday. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I think it's just being happy with yourself and knowing what makes you happy and accepting that. Mm. Um, you know, I've been single for a couple of years and I know when I first became single, um, it was a fear, you know, am I going to be alone for the rest of my life? Mm. Is that it? And, you know, the pandemic just made me go, oh, just stop being such a stupid woman. <laughs> you know? Fine. You know, and I kind of have like some weird blind faith that, yeah, I'm sure I'll meet someone at some point in my future. But, you know, I have no control over that. I have no way of knowing when that's going to happen, how that's going to happen. So why am I wasting my life worrying about something that I can't control? Mm. What I can control is how I'm reacting to the situation I'm in now. So I could have spent a year and a half feeling miserable and that I was a single and that, you know, I was having to go through lockdown on my own. Technically, you know, my family are not in this country. So, you know, it was genuinely quite, could have been quite isolating, but it wasn't, you know, and I chose to approach it positively mm. and to learn from it. And obviously the yoga was a huge part of that. And my female friendships, mm. I would not have survived lockdown without my female friendships. And that's taught me a huge amount this year about who I am and yeah, just to be comfortable with myself mm. and not not worry too much and the rest will just hopefully fall into place. It's such a graceful way of talking about the huge discomfort that so many people have experienced over the last year. And I can absolutely relate about the the gift of having FOMO stripped away and a little bit of anxiety that I'll go back to it. Yeah, because it gave me all that quiet, gave me a chance to really see how much I socialized because I should or because I'm an extrovert. And then I realized I'm way less extroverted than I thought I was. Maybe you too. Yeah, I just really yep. enjoy my own company. It's amazing. Yeah, acceptance. Yep. Well, as somebody who obviously cares an awful lot about the purpose and the impact of your work, because your job is to work on climate emergency and to come up with really tangible, you know, fully planned out ways for Hampshire County Council to implement work that will mitigate climate crisis. And then also you're involved in a lot of the diversity and inclusion work at Hampshire. And as a woman of color and leadership, there's a lot going on there. So how do you, two questions, how do you take care of yourself so that you can keep hacking away at that purpose, chipping away at that purpose in your work. And then also, where are the areas that are still uncomfortable, where there's a big gap between the policy, the words, and what's actually possible or what's actually happening? So first, how do you take care of yourself to keep doing that work? And then how do you deal with that gap? And the first one is actually quite easy. Like I said, you know, previously, I have a really good work-life balance. I've always been fiercely protective of that, partly because I was always the primary care for my daughter. So even when I was married, I was still the one who had to drop her off and pick her up. So my hours were always constrained by that. And 
I realized that I could get the job done without having to log back on at six, seven o'clock at night. You know, I, I could actually do it during those hours. What I do find is because I do that, I get a lot of ideas at random times and I just write them down. So, you know, I think it's I, there's this whole presenteeism thing, and that can also mean sitting in front of your computer, not mm -hmm. just presenteeism as in physically being in an office, which is not productive. You know, so I find a lot of the time when I've got something to do, I don't do it because I will just know it's percolating in my head. And if I'm doing the laundry or, you know, making dinner, it'll suddenly come to me that I need, you know, that's something that I need to kind of write down. And I often write things on my phone at two o'clock in the morning, mostly work related, um, because that's when it happens. So I think I've just worked out um, that me sitting on it in front of a computer for hours on end is not the way I get things done. Um, I get my job done. Obviously, I have things I have to do during my work hours, but a lot of the creative strategic thinking all of that thing happens subconsciously for me so I need to make sure I have that space and you know I had a really excellent manager at Hampshire who said to me the more often I see you sitting and staring out the window the happier I am because I know you're thinking and things are forming in your mind and that is productive time so don't ever think that you're just sitting there staring out the window and he's was absolutely right, you know. So for me, that work-life balance has, I'm, I, I don't know, I'm just, I've always been really quite, you know, selfish mm. about it. And because I've always done the job I needed to do whilst having it, I fiercely protect it, you know. And I have said to managers when I've gone for promotions, I'm not staying late. I can't. I need to be home because I have a child. And, you know, even now my daughter's 14, she would not be happy with me coming mm -hmm. home late, you know. So even when I'm sat at the computer after about an hour of her being at home, she's like, uh, are you finishing? <laughs> Can you come off? <laughs> you know. Wow. So it's not, you know, so it is important that I'm there and present for her. Mm. And I like that, you know, I want to have that time with her. Well, and to term that selfish is like, for me, that's very female. It's boundaried, yes, I would exactly. say. It's just having strong boundaries, which is great. Yes. You need those. Yeah. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I love having the time that I have for myself. And I think it makes me better at my job. Mm. So, I, you know, until someone tells me otherwise, my work-life balance is what it is. And I, I don't. I don't tend to work in the evenings. I don't work weekends. I pretty much keep it during the working day and get it done, you know, so mm -hmm. that's... I, yeah, I was a little bit late to the party on realizing how useful downtime is when it isn't really downtime. It's just you're being creative or you're, you're thinking yeah. and you need that because if you're constantly going from meeting to meeting to meeting or phone call or whatever, you can't actually be very strategic. Some nope. people can be, but I certainly can't be. So totally agree. Wish I'd figured yeah. that out about... 20 years ago <laughs> and it's my job to you know it's part of my it's you know you were talking about how do I deliver so kind of bleeding into your second question I think the kind of you know the practical how do we get this done how do we meet our targets yes that's one side of it but really my job is the kind of more difficult part of that which is the sort of creative thinking around it and you know because we can all have all these numbers and we can all crunch numbers till we're blue in the face about how much carbon we're emitting but is that actually going to 
do the job? I don't think so. I think some of those numbers sit at sort of a national level, you know, in terms of some of the policy areas that we need to change. But on a local level, it becomes less and less about that. And I think people get too caught up in trying to put a number to everything, you know, how much carbon have you saved doing this? It's actually, it's, we're trying to change behavior and lifestyle. We're trying to change the way people are living, working, doing, and that's really difficult. And it's never going to happen overnight. And even if you make the change, people are funny. They just go back to doing what they were doing before. You know, we all know that, you know, you can, you can do your yoga every day for two years and then one day you stop and then that's it. You know, you've broken the habit. So it's really challenging. So part of my role is to be kind of creative and strategic and different ways of doing things. And, you know, and I think that for me is, kind of a bit of a challenge because again you know we get we get a lot of pressure for from a lot of external bodies saying you know you're not doing enough you know you need to do more and and I understand that but you know we are a local authority and our primary business is to serve our residents you know we are there to deliver public services for the public good and Unfortunately, not all of those public services for the public good are that great for climate change, but we are trying to integrate them, you know, and we are facing a huge amount of financial pressures, you know, COVID, before that austerity, continuing austerity now, it hasn't gone away. So it is really difficult. So my role is to try and find that pragmatic approach, you know, let's let's do the stuff that's actually important let's focus on the stuff that's worth doing and not about headline grabbing or, you know, spinning a story. It is very much about, you know, delivering stuff on the ground and trying to make a difference. And a lot of it is around behavior change and working with our residents, you know, Mm -hmm. and raising awareness and trying to support them in changing the way that we live in order to move to a different, you know, carbon or adaptation you know those two things uh, go hand in hand and yeah the context of public sector is always really tricky too because you have these very transparent and slow moving processes with which to change systems that you probably have signed a 30-year contract for 20 years ago so yeah it's difficult to change behavior when residents are still served by systems that are old (laughs) that are set up in a diff- during a time with different understanding of what was needed and what impact would be positive or negative. Yeah, you definitely, you, you exist in a challenging sector, a challenging sphere, having done a lot of work with public sector and behavior change together, actually. Yeah. We well know those challenges of just trying Absolutely. to get people to wake up and change their behavior. And uh, yeah, it's a tricky balance, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, we just have to, I think it's, you know, for me, it's about working with organizations that can support us, help us, challenge us, you know, open our eyes to new ways of doing things, um, you know, show us that there are different approaches to what we do. But it's also the other way around. It's about us being open and honest about what we can and cannot do and why we can't do certain things, or why, you know, we are constrained in certain ways. And you know, it's a bit like going all the way back to the beginning of the conversation about not making any assumptions. Mm. You know, I think a lot of people have a lot of assumptions about how local government operates, and it's often wrong. 
you know, because it is such a complex beast that it, I would be amazed if anybody fully understood how local government works. But, you know, it's a challenging time to be doing something like climate change alongside, you know, what is now sort of the one of the worst economic um, hits that we've had. You know, the social care system is is just being crippled, you know, and during COVID, obviously, there was a lot more demand on some of those social care areas, which I think a lot of people maybe are not aware of. So, yeah, so having another priority like climate change that affects absolutely everything that we do is a real challenge. So trying to find that pragmatic approach mm. is what my kind of job is while still being creative. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I've got two final questions for you. <laughs> the first is what keeps you uncomfortable? And the second is what makes you hopeful? Oh, productively uncomfortable, hopefully. I mean, I have to say it's still, for me, the inclusion and diversity agenda. It's still a really uncomfortable space, even for me, um, mm. because it's it's different for everyone. You know, everyone's experience is different. Um, everyone's um, reactions to things are different. And and I do understand the, the kind of fear people have in talking about some of these issues. And I have that, you know, as still someone of color, I have some of those fears. So I think it's about kind of challenging myself to continue to be part of that conversation, to be part of those networks, to listen, to learn, to broaden, you know, and one of the things that, I, you know, for me that I've realized is, you know, my daughter growing up in a world where, you know, sexuality, all of those things have become something that at 14, they're all talking about. I mean, I'm pretty sure I didn't really think about what I was when I was 14, is also really difficult because, you know, your your kind of gut instinct is to be like, oh, you're too, it's too young. You know, you're, you're just, you're going through a phase. Don't worry about it. And it's like, no, that's not the right answer. That is not the right approach. You know, if my mum had told me I was going through a phase at 14 when I wanted to cut my hair, or you know, I would have exploded. <laughs> you don't understand me. So I think it is about challenging myself to listen to a 14-year-old and say, okay, why are you feeling that way? What, what do you think? How do you feel? You know, but at the same time, you know, the advice of don't box yourself in, don't, you know, don't put yourself in a box unnecessarily. You can be whatever you want to be, however you want to be it, whenever you want to be it. But yes, understanding that these things are making her ask questions, making her feel uncomfortable, you know, and that for me is such a huge learning curve. And they don't teach you any of this. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> parenting 405, all those classes you've done on being a parent to a 14-year-old girl. Oh, boy. Yeah. And I don't, I genuinely think this is probably one of the hardest times in recent history for young people, mm. you know, and I, you know, I don't think my mum had to deal with all of the kind of stuff that I'm talking to my daughter about. I, you know, I think it, it is, it's very different for us as parents now. Mm. And, you know, I know a lot of people will say, oh, you know, a school's responsibility to do it. No, it's not. It's our responsibility as parents to teach our children and to make sure that they are educated and well-read and well-understanding -under issues and not making judgments and statements that they shouldn't be making, you know. And that's a lot. That's a lot, 
you know, and it's scary. <laughs> so the headline is what keeps you uncomfortable? Having a teenage daughter. Like a teenage daughter. And everything that goes with that, I cannot even imagine because I'm not much younger than you and I cannot imagine having a teenager right now in this world because you are yeah. you are sort of you're shepherding in a new generation who are coming into a very different paradigm, which is great, but wow, wow. <laughs> Extra surprise yep. elements and spice <laughs> in this one. Yeah. So then what makes you hopeful? The fact that there is all of this now, that it's all, you can just be whoever you want to be. And, you know, I think that's in some ways, yeah, that's really confusing and, you know, like way too many options out there. But on the other hand, that is the whole point is, you know, I love the fact that my daughter is, she's, you know, she's got her own personality now. She's got her own style. She doesn't look like the other girls in her year she doesn't dress like them she cut all her hair off you know she wanted a short bob she had long lovely hair she was like I want to cut it off I was like fine whatever do what you want you know and I just love that I love the fact that she feels that she can bring all of that um and be that already at 14 in and of course I'm sure she'll go through five million iterations of who she is but the whole point is she's She's quite comfortable just going, you know what, this is how I want to look and this is how I want to dress. And if you've got a problem with it, that's your problem, not mm -hmm. mine. So that gives me hope that, you know, at 14, she is me when I was 30, probably. Wow. <laughs> you know, so so it's it's quite uh, quite amazing. And, yeah, that the fact that it, whatever said and done, however uncomfortable, the conversation's there. Mm. The door's open. You can't close it. I don't think anybody really wants to close it. I think, you know, it's just about how we keep going. And, you know, we are early days in this journey. So, yeah, it feels like there is so much more to be done, but that that's where we all want to get to. Yeah. So, yeah. And I feel like, I don't know if you agree, COVID has really accelerated that because in the kind of work we do, we've been doing it for a long time. And for many years, it did just feel like we were very, we were considered niche and yes. sort of, you know, the fluffy bunnies over there with that, you know, purpose-driven <laughs> work thing that they really care about. And now people are realizing our house is on fire and we have to do something about it together. And while some people are freaking yeah. out and dealing with climate crisis mentally for the first time ever, it's kind of nice to be like, oh, they know. Now people know and we get to do stuff together. Yes. We have more firepower. So, yeah, I agree. It's, it's hopeful. I think a lot of us who've been burned out in the climate change movement are social inclusion stuff over the years are are getting a second wind <laughs> or a third or a fourth yes. and you know i think the fact that it's all just now you know the green economy the kind of build back better yeah. all of those you know may all seem like just words but they're not it's about really understanding now that we can't build an economy that isn't sustainable and you know doesn't take account of climate change mm. and what actually what we had before covid was not that good you know, and I think that for me has been such a such a shift in perception, you know, and again, working for a very conservative organization, you know, you know, I'm doing some work with the New Economics Foundation. And the reason is because they presented to us and their kind of, you know, what they were saying about the economy and how it was and how it should be rang so many bells with everyone. And 
everybody was like, this is what we should be doing. So we are, we're working with them. And that I genuinely don't think this would have happened, you know, five, 10 years ago, or five years ago. Well, they so, were a project of new labor, right? They were sort of a Tony Blair burst, yes. well, mm. body. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Sort of the blurring it, of political boundaries over particular issues that we've moved on. Yes. Amazing. Absolutely. So, yeah, and it feels like, you know, you're right. It's no longer on the periphery. It's now right in the center, mm. which is a great place to yeah. be, you know, because. It's like we've been fighting a war that people haven't acknowledged. And now people realize that we really have to throw everything at this because it is threatening the survival of us as a species. So, yeah. And we all want to be in a nice, we want to live in a nice society that isn't dangerous because it's unequal. Yeah, yes. I agree. I feel quite hopeful, even though the pieces that I'm putting together, sentences like that sound scary, but yeah, it makes me hopeful. Yeah. No, we're, it's no doubt that this is going to be such a difficult journey, but I think the fact is that, you know, everyone now seems to get that this is the journey we are on and we know where we want to get to. Mm. So it's, you know, and I think I know there's a lot of people saying, oh, not fast enough. And I get that. I do get that. But, you know, changing people's behaviors and the way that we live doesn't happen overnight mm. and if it did it wouldn't sustain and therefore we just revert back to type at some point and then that would be even worse yeah. so I want to do it the way that sticks and I want to do it the way that kind of really you know we we kind of do it right well, I feel like what I've gotten from this whole conversation is well acceptance has been a beautiful theme but also just the message to people listening to this is just that there are a lot of good people and really interesting organizations, really interesting roles who are very human, very well-rounded, very passionate and purpose-driven, doing good work like you and getting some shit done. So I am so grateful to have come across you <laughs> yes. because, A, I think you're amazing, but also to have have been able to see for myself that I had, you know, a little bit of a stereotype about, you know, public sector organizations and the pace of change and meeting you and doing this incredibly innovative, fail fast kind of project at Hampshire County Council was just still one of the most fun projects I've ever had because we were genuinely allowed to play with, you know, approaches and find things that worked and, and build new methods. And it was just such a treat. So thank you so much for coming on today and just being yourself. Always it's a pleasure because you are one of the most well-rounded and interesting people that I know and continue to lead the way you lead and be who you are. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Betsy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Chitra. Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Tsvedkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify, or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at TheBetsyRead. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to Patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.